Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics, the law, and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School professor Jessica Levinson, and today we're going to have a conversation with Anand Girdardis. He's the author of the international bestseller, Winner Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. He's also written The True American, Murder and Mercy in Texas, and India Calling, An Intimate Portrait of a Nation's Remaking. His new book is the focus of our conversation today, The Persuaders, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. He is a former foreign correspondent and columnist for The New York Times. He's also written for The New Yorker, The Atlantic, and Time. And he started the Substack newsletter, the Inc. That's the dot Inc. You've probably also seen him on air because he's a political analyst for MSNBC. Anand, welcome. Thank you for passing judgment with us. I'm happy to be here. So as I mentioned, this new book is really about changing systems and therefore about changing minds. And it seems to me right now that we're in a contest, and I've heard you talk about this before, not about policy, but truly about the future of democracy. And I think people who are listening to the podcast are thinking right off the bat, are we still persuadable? Can we still change each other's minds in a time when it seems like everybody is just so entrenched? It feels like that, doesn't it? I mean, I, I think, you know, speaking of passing judgment, it feels like we have all passed such profound judgment on each other as citizens that everything feels intractable. And it feels like it, whether you want better health care or whether you want pro-democracy kind of forces to prevail over anti-democracy forces, whether you want a particular person to be your representative or your president, it feels like how could you possibly move people's minds within your family, within your workplace, within your community? That is very much the kind of mood of the nation. And I wrote the book because in many ways, I too have been partaking of that despair and that sense of futility and that sense that the people committed to Trump will always be committed to him. The people committed to not getting the vaccine will always be committed to that, so on and so forth. But I wondered if my despair was accurate, if it was valid, if I was despairing in an evidence-based way or kind of in an emotional but not true way. And I decided to kind of a couple of years ago go on a reporting journey among people trying to change minds in a time when it feels so hard. And what I learned is that there are people doing it. There are people doing remarkable work on the ground in communities around this country and in national politics and everywhere in between, moving people's minds, changing minds in order to try to change things. But where they are succeeding, it is because they are going about it very differently from most of us. They are operating with different assumptions than most of us operate with. They are pursuing that kind of changing of minds in ways that differ from what most of us are doing. They have a set of approaches, a kind of playbook, I would call it, that is really different from what you would see from, you know, let's say the mainstream Democratic Party or or even, you know, those of us who are trying on the smaller scale of our families and communities. So I kind of set out to learn the playbook from these people who were figuring out how to do what the rest of us are struggling to do. Uh, and the book is in many ways a set of lessons from them, conversations with these persuaders, trying to get at what I think are the elements of this new playbook that can make 
everyone listening to this a better persuader? One of the things that I keep thinking about when I was reading the book and even now is that it just seems like the right is better at that new playbook and that yep. those who are fighting for democracy seem to be kind of struggling in the dark for what that operating system is. Not all of the listeners will have read the book yet. Could you give us the very broad brush of what are some of the similarities you see in this new operating system? You talked about the playbook, the new approach. What are some of the top of the line things that those who are really good at this do? First of all, I think your overall analysis is really correct. And we should just dwell on that for one second, which is that the whole idea of democracy is based on the idea that you could try to change people's minds in order to change things, right? Before we did democracy, we just had like one guy in the village or the country or the kingdom decide. And that was kind of how most humans have lived throughout time. In the last 300 years, we basically started doing a different thing where we all decide by engaging in a 24-7, 365 insane, loud conversation, and through that, choose the future. And one of the great plot twists in human history was this actually turns out to be a better way to choose the future, more just, but actually makes better decisions, so on and so forth. So the whole system, though, is dependent on us being able to actually talk to each other, people being able to say, hey, we define marriage this way right now, but uh, I don't fit your definition of marriage, can we change that? Here's who I am. Here's what I want. Here's my humanity. That kind of petition response, petition response is the lifeblood of a free society. Is the reason to not be ruled by some guy. And as we have lost faith in that notion, we have descended into this near autocratic place. And so you are right that the right actually understands and still believes in how to actually reach and move people. And in many ways, the political left, the pro-democracy movement writ large, doesn't. So here's some of the elements of the playbook that I pay attention to. You know, first of all, in the social media, just generally media age we live in, the ability to command attention is incredibly important. Walter Cronkite is not giving some political cause his attention and having 46 million people watch it every night. That world is over, right? So you know, if you look at someone like Donald Trump, you look at a lot of folks on the right, they have an, a theory of attention, right? They don't just introduce policy. They have a theory of how can you get people talking about your ideas, talking negatively about them, positively about them, so on and so forth. Now, if you look at the left, generally quite lags on this score, but the exceptions prove the rule. Someone like AOC, I think everyone would agree, has a very deft understanding of how to use attention to deliver on your larger objectives. Now compare AOC to virtually anybody else in her party, right? I think another very, very important element these days, uh, and it's a core theme of the book, is meaning-making. And what I mean by meaning-making is, you know, in a lot of political life, when I look at the political left and the pro-democracy movement, I see a kind of transactional approach to politics often. So, you know, I want your vote, I want your $5, you know, quick in and out requests for transactions. I think what the right has actually understood over the last generation 
is that you have to actually walk with people in the long off season. In other words, you don't just show up at the end and ask for a vote. You don't just say, hey, we're going to do this healthcare policy or we're going to do this tax policy. You build an entire physical and psychological and media infrastructure to walk with people from the everyday stimuli and observations of moving through the world with the, all the questions about the world that moving through it raises, uh, an infrastructure to take people from those stimuli and observations to your political worldview. And I think one of the things I learned in reporting the book is that this doesn't happen automatically. People don't go from noticing more Spanish-speaking cashiers at Walgreens in their town. People don't go from that to fearing an alien invasion on the southern border automatically or instantaneously. There's a tremendous amount of climbing of a kind of intellectual ladder that needs to happen, a tremendous amount of what I call meaning-making that needs to happen for people to process the mere thing they're seeing into a kind of politics, right? Or your kid comes home, as so many kids are these days, saying, hey, mommy, I, I learned that the founding fathers were bad people. Right. And that's just happening. It's happening with you on the left, you're the right. It's just happening because we're finally teaching some truth in history classes. So that's happening. It takes some effort, some meaning making for the average person to go from that to there's a CRT conspiracy to, you know, communist plot to brainwash people to hate America. People don't get there like in five seconds. It takes meaning making. It takes a real project, which the right has been engaged in, to carry people, to convey people on a belt from that mere stimuli of a kid asking a question to a kind of fanatical devotion to abolishing CRT. And I could go down the list. And so when I look at the far right, I look at a movement that has built a conveyor belt from the stimuli of ordinary life into their politics. And when I look at the left, I think broadly speaking, it is showing up in front of America offering policies. You know, let, we're going to do this on climate. We're going to do this on taxes. We're going to do this on healthcare. Good policies, policies I generally support. But I think there's an entire missing element of meeting people where they are in the fears that they have in an age of churn and change, having answers to the questions people have in their everyday lives. And so that kind of meaning-making process through real civic engagement, door-to-door -door canvassing, you know, real infrastructure, political infrastructure reaching down into communities, permanent infrastructure, that's incredibly important. And finally, I would say, you know, I think there's an element of being able to provide a kind of political home for people, not just being this wonky space, but providing a emotional shelter. Again, the right is very good. As Alicia Garza, one of the progenitors of Black Lives Matter movement, told me for the book, the right really understands people. It offers people kind of an emotional shelter, right? And the left really speaks in this kind of jargon of policy. And finally, story. You know, you got to tell the better story about America, that you can't just rest on the laurels of policy. You have to tell the more compelling story. And look, it is easier for the right to sell a fear-based story. It's easier to scapegoat people. It's easier to claim that Muslim Mexican rapists 
or destroying Western civilization. Anybody can do that. And so, yeah, they have an easier run, but it is possible to tell much more compelling stories about America than I think the political left is doing right now. And I think they can change that. Anand, there's so much I want to pick up on there. Of course, we're talking about your new book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. And you mentioned a few moments ago, Representative AOC, and I want to pick up on this, but I'm someone who teaches constitutional law, and I talk a lot about the direction of the law in the Supreme Court with my students. And I have to tell you that all of the things you discussed with respect to political persuasion, it seems to me that they also map onto our legal system as well, because our legal system is all about persuasion, right? There's a set of facts and there's a set of laws and who's going to win, who can tell the better story. And I think what you said about playing the long game is something that I see and meaning making is something that I see the conservative jurists do so well. It's just fascinating to me in reading your book and thinking about what makes effective persuasion and obviously thinking about the Supreme Court and all these really impactful decisions that they're making. And they could just make their decisions with a yes or no. But of course, those written decisions are all about trying to persuade us that they were right. And so I think what you're saying really maps onto so many different areas of society. Now, having gone on that little tangent for a moment, I think we all have just lived through another historic moment, which is 15 rounds of fighting to determine who is going to be the next Speaker of the House. And it seemed to me, again, in watching that happen, that everybody was so dug into their sides and that everybody seemed to be so tied to their view. It was very difficult to move people off of what they had already chosen in terms of who to vote for. And this is where we go back to Representative AOC. And she really, through social media and through, as you said, the ability to command attention, is somebody who I think helped to walk us through that process. You talk a lot about her and profile her in the book. Could you tell us something that you found to be surprising about her method of persuasion? Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you a little bit about I mean, what was interesting about how she even ended up in the book. She became a third of the book in my four books. I don't think any single subject or characters ever ended up occupying a third of an entire book. But um, I think if you read the book as you have, you'll understand why. And she, in this funny way, kind of wrote herself into the book. What happened was she had come on this TV show that I hosted briefly. It was canceled after eight episodes, which proves that cancel culture is real. And she was, I think, my first guest on the show. And I was, I think, right before that or after that, texting with her to thank her for coming on the show. And she asked what I was working on, you know, book-wise. And I said, this book on persuasion. And she said something to the effect of, that's so interesting. I think of myself as a persuader, but no one sees me that way. And that paradox really interested me. I mean, I, I was already incredibly admiring of her, but I don't know that I saw her as a persuader. I saw her perhaps as someone who's a, you know, very dogged champion of a set of very high ideals for the country. And I think even in that, the early days of writing the book, I kind of myself defined persuasion in a very different way than I would define it now, which is kind of finding common ground and coming to the middle to reach people. And so I was interested in this notion that she saw herself as a persuader. 
And as I spent time with her, and frankly, a lot of the different characters I write about in the book, I think the journey I went on is realizing that in this day and age, at least, what works in terms of persuading is not capitulating and compromising and coming to the middle. It is some more complicated combination of having real and powerful beliefs that are actually attractive to people because they're undiluted in a way. They're not, you know, like weak sauce and being able to kind of reach out to people at the same time. And she, I think, really embodies a kind of multimodal, multilingual form of persuasion that is really different from, I think, the old model we are used to hearing about, which is you persuade people by just kind of giving in, what the Democratic Party certainly has done for a generation, which is just water things down in order to reach the middle. And AOC, I think, incarnates this different model that a lot of people in the book are experimenting with, where it's actually a combination of really standing your ground, picking fights, commanding attention, being provocative, and thinking like an organizer about how you can pull in people who you haven't pulled in yet. And so I was just really fascinated by her effort to pursue that kind of form of persuasion. And I think the, you know, the fascinating human story at the heart of it for me is that, you know, what happens when you become famous overnight for a quality in you that is not necessarily your dominant quality or the quality you see yourself as, but that's what you become famous for, but the real you is someone else. And I think that's kind of what happened to AOC in many ways. She is an organizer's organizer who really thinks a lot about how do you sell the same thing to different people based on showing empathy and respect for their different values and systems. But she kind of became famous overnight for being kind of queen of the strident, duchess of the doctrinaire. And it created a very interesting conflict and dilemma that I try to unpack through conversations with her in the book. You do. And I absolutely understand why she commands and should have such a big percentage of the book. And there's so much more I'd like to ask you about that. But you mentioned something about the middle and this, I think, intuitive sense that we have of let's just try and find a middle ground. Let's appeal to the center. One of the other people that you profile here is communications consultant Anat Shankar Osario, who argues that that's a counterproductive approach. And you just touched on it a little bit, but could you expand for people who I think are listening at home or on a walk and thinking, no, we just have to find some sort of common ground. That's the answer. Why is that maybe not the answer to move towards the center? I think one of the things I really learned in reporting the persuaders from Anat Shankarasorio and others is this kind of common delusion about what a moderate even is, right? Because so much of our politics is that notion of common ground, that notion of the swing voter, that notion of courting kind of undecided voters in the last 48 hours or a few weeks of an election. It's all premised on like this notion of the moderate voter. And what Anat and others that I profile in the book kind of showed me through their work is that the so-called moderate voter is profoundly misunderstood. The basic myth is that the moderate voter lives in the middle, that we have a political spectrum from left to right, that moderates, these decisive people are like a group of people clustered at the kind of on the median, standing on the median of American political life. Well, it's not true. 
Uh, it's just not true. There's not like 40 million people just like standing right at the exact midpoint or near it, right? What being a moderate actually means in terms of politics is that you're persuadable. And what it actually means in practice is that sometimes you go this way, sometimes you go that way, or that you have some concerns and issues that put you on this side and others put you on that side. You know, there are people, uh, you may know some of them who, you know, hate immigrants and think the border should be shut, but are very strong on gay rights because of their nephew, right? That's a moderate in a certain sense, because depending on what's happening, what issues are made salient, what the pitches are, they may vote their support for LGBT rights, or they may vote their contempt for immigrants, and they're going to have to choose in a given cycle because those are different sides. And so once you understand the moderate as someone who really is in a way without a controlling algorithmic worldview that tells them how to think about everything, they're, they're people who are capable, as Anat Shankar Osorio tells me, of being toggled into a very right-wing understanding of the world and capable of being toggled into a very left-wing understanding of the world. They're the people who, when Barack Obama comes along, he makes them feel something and they vote for a Democrat for the first time in their life. Or they're the people who've always voted for Democrats, but Trump comes along and they think, you know what? This guy's the change candidate. He's going to smash the system. Let's give him a whirl. And they vote for a Republican for the first time in their lives. Now, if you are someone who has a real baked worldview, this may be unfathomable to you. But a significant number of your fellow citizens do not fall into the kind of neat ideological categories. And so once you have this understanding of the moderate, once you understand the moderate as someone who essentially has less of a controlling worldview and can go this way or that way depending on conditions, you don't cater to that moderate. You don't try to win that moderate by hewing to the center. The center is not necessarily where that person is. Where that person is, is torn, is looking for a way of thinking about the problem that is not decisive for them yet. And so it actually changes the calculus of what you need to do to win those people. And what Anat and others suggest is that you need to encircle those moderates with a sense that the world you are fighting for is the norm, is the thing we're doing. And in that sense, shopping for a candidate or a stance for moderates is sort of like the way we all shop for pants. You know, we don't do detailed analysis when we buy pants, we sort of vote on vibes. Like we sort mm -hmm. of like, what are people doing on pants these days? Like, are we going loose, tight, high, low, rolled up, not rolled up, right? When's the last time you saw bell bottoms, right? Country of 350 million people, people can do whatever they want. When is the last time you saw bell bottoms? Broadly speaking, people go to buy pants and they're like, what is everyone else doing here? Right? And I think the moderate voter is more like that than we understand. They're not sitting there reading Plato and Aristotle in the New York Times and figuring out the ideal policy stance. They're voting on vibes. And so you got to create better vibes around them. And you need your movement to be all up in their grill, in their neighborhood and community, having better barbecues than the other side. And you need to just you know, have your message blaring everywhere they look, right? The, you need to have your ideas so viral and sticky that they can't 
escape them. A simple way I try to distill this in the book is to say, if you know someone, if you offer someone a choice between pizza and a burger for dinner tonight, and they can't decide, they're an undecided voter, it does not follow that they want a pizza burger, right? It just means they don't know whether they want a pizza or a burger. Right. And what the Democratic Party has done in many cases over the last generation is to offer pizza burgers out of fear that someone doesn't want their pizza. And in fact, what you have to do is just make people think that pizza is better than a burger. It's more fun. People who have pizza have more fun and make it more attractive to be on team pizza. I love bringing it down to these issues, right? Because everybody understands what you're talking about when you say it's pizza or a burger, or everybody understands why maybe the one thing that we have positively embraced is our wholesale rejection of bell bottoms, as you mentioned. And I think it's such an important dynamic that you talk about in terms of what really makes a moderate voter and the fact that they may be torn on a lot of issues. And I know that our conversation is going to have to draw to a close soon, but we've spent a lot of time on this podcast talking to experts in disinformation. And it seems to me that that's so inextricably intertwined with persuasion. And I know that you talk about disinformation in your new book, The Persuaders, again, at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. And maybe getting at the same question a slightly different way, a lot of people listening probably see on TV and in social media people who are conveying views that they just know are untrue. Just last night, somebody sent me a social media, a short video of somebody who said, well, I know President Trump and JFK Jr. will figure this out together. And JFK Jr. isn't really dead. And President Trump is still really the president. And I think it just leaves a lot of people saying, how was she persuaded that those things are true? And how can I persuade her otherwise? And I know that you've talked a lot about meaning making and playing the long game and giving people a home. Is there something specific when it comes to disinformation, some tools that people can use to try and dispel those falsehoods? Yeah, I have a chapter in the book about this problem specifically, because as I was working on it, it occurred to me that I was writing about a lot of traditional persuasion, but I didn't have anything and needed to have something on this element. Because it's one thing to try to persuade people to adopt the kind of tax policy you like or lake management policy your neighborhood needs or whatever. It's another thing to persuade people who, you know, believe the moon is made of green cheese, as, as the saying goes. So look, I profiled two people in the book for this chapter. One is a former cult victim who now helps extract people from cults and has started thinking about what do you do when it's not one person that needs to be extracted from cults, but tens of millions who will kind of belong to dispersed online cult-like structures like QAnon. And the other is a cognitive scientist named John Cook. The former cult person was Diane Benscoder. The cognitive scientist is, is John Cook. And John's work has a lot to do with how do you prevent disinformation on climate but also other areas. And in their totally different ways as a scientist and as a personal cult victim turned practitioner, both of them came to the same conclusion in a different form, which is that this cult-like manipulation and disinformation are problems that are here to stay. They're probably endemic to the structure and nature of the internet. 
they prey on features of being human that are not going anywhere anytime soon. It's part of the post-Walter Cronkite world we were talking about, right? This is just going to be there. And a lot of the discourse that you hear about shutting off the spigot or getting Fox to stop spreading lie, it's just not going to work. It's barking up the wrong tree. What they suggest is we need a public health approach to disinformation as opposed to some fantasy of abolishing or getting rid of it. We need to protect people from infection by disinformation. The same way with public health approach to, to cigarettes or to any other virus in our midst, if that rings a bell. And so the question is, what does what a public health approach to disinformation look like? And basically, it centers on the kind of receipt of the transmission as opposed to the broadcast of the transmission. And it's a kind of educational revolution that they think needs to happen where we are including as part of a normal education for everyone, a resilience to organize manipulated, well-funded lies. If you think about you know, something like sex ed, for much of history, uh, in most places, sexual education was something that was thought to be best delivered privately. Your parents would tell you or you'd, you know, whatever the way in which human beings have figured things out over time. And at some point they realized that's actually not the best way to have people discover their sexuality because people were getting a lot of social problems out of that lack of information. So it came to be seen as a shared social responsibility to give all teenagers that common minimum bedrock of education about their bodies and others' bodies and sexuality so that they can function, right? Same way that shift happened, both Diane and John in their own ways advocate for a kind of real curriculum to foster resilience to disinformation, to be able to recognize the steps where by which you are being manipulated by a YouTube rabbit hole series of videos or billionaire-owned media enterprise or anything else. And they think this is the next big educational revolution. If you think about when we went to school, critical thinking was like, here's a paper, what is the author trying to say, and what's the biggest flaw in their argument? Like, they're not saying we need to do that. They're saying something way more significant and drastic than that. How can you tell when you are being deceived? You know, this needs to be essentially a core skill that is taught um, and that every young person essentially has. And in some ways, it's a depressing thought to accept this kind of disinformation as endemic. But once you accept that, if you do, the solution to something endemic is to essentially inoculate people's minds against it. I think you're so absolutely dead on to talk about this as a public health crisis and to use the terms that we use when we talk about an actual virus, because it truly is infecting, as far as I can see, so many different aspects of our society. And we could obviously do more than a full hour or episode just on disinformation. But I want to end, I think, where you end in the book talking about this thing called deep canvassing. I first began my legal career really in the area of election law and voting rights and thinking a lot about how to try to change people's minds, maybe door to door, maybe through other mediums, and how to best do that, how to best allocate resources to do that. And in our remaining time, I'm wondering if you could talk to us as you do in the book, The Persuaders, about 
what deep canvassing is and why it's effective. Yeah, deep canvassing. I mean, of all the things that I encountered in reporting the persuaders, deep canvassing perhaps inspired me the most. I think it was something that gave me a, a tonic of hope in a time that, you know, as you know, that can sometimes feel hard to come by. And deep canvassing is a is an experiment that grew out of a uh, actually a, a kind of very difficult uh, legal setback in 2008 when the gay rights movement lost Prop 8 in California and, and lost gay marriage after it had been legalized just a few months earlier. So there have been a few months of legal marriages and then by referendum, it's shut down. And what was really striking about that, first of all, this is not Alabama, this is California. And what was really striking about the vote as the breakdown came out, these activists told me, is where the opposition was. The opposition was everywhere. And they didn't know that. I think uh, LA County voted against gay marriage in 2008. Los Angeles, right? Like, if you had to make a ranking of places that you might feel relatively safe being gay, like LA would probably be relatively high on that list. Right. LA County voted against gay people having full equality under the law in 2008. Large parts of San Francisco, San Francisco voted against gay marriage in 2008, and the state as a whole did. And so for some of these gay rights activists in the state, it was a real wake-up call. They suddenly had this evidence that their neighbors, their friends, one of them described it to me as, you know, I'd go to the supermarket and like see someone standing next to me in the produce aisle and thinking, statistically, that's probably one of the people who thinks I'm not a full human being. Kind of an alarming thought at your neighborhood yeah. grocery store, but now they had evidence to back it up. And so some of these activists went on a journey of saying, we have to talk to these people. This is not Mitch McConnell taking our rights away. This is not Sam Alito and the Supreme Court taking our rights away. This is our neighbors living one mile from our favorite gay club in LA taking away our rights. This is ordinary people that we are going to school with and work with and who live in our families who do not think we are human. And these amazing gay rights activists did what no one should have to do, which is they started going door to door in communities and talking to people and saying, essentially, like, why do you hate me? But they didn't say it that way. What they really did at the beginning before it was a formal method, the way it is now, is they listened. That was the seed of it. They just wanted to hear how people thought about that issue, right? And it's very countercultural now because we often feel a need to call people out if they say something obnoxious. They didn't do any of that. They just listened. I think their theory was, you know, bile is finite. Just like, get the bile out of your body. Okay, you got any more bile? Say it all. And then at some point, people actually run out of their bile. And what began to evolve into the formal method is deep canvassing is today is eliciting those views, those feelings about an issue, and then through a series of conversational maneuvers, trying to mine for potential sources of dissonance with those views in that person's own head and heart. Okay, so that's not to say, okay, you say gay people are a danger to our children, but I'm me knocking on your door, I'm gonna rebut you point for point. The idea is not to contest their feeling about the issue with your feeling about the issue. 
The idea is to contest their feeling about the issue with other feelings they have. Maybe feelings that are lurking below the surface that they haven't quite connected to the issue in question. And so, you know, they would ask people, do you know any people who are gay? Do you know any people who are trans? Do you know any people who are immigrants as the whole thing evolved? And sometimes people would say, yeah. Is the thing you said about that group that they're lazy, that they're danger to kids, is that true of the guy Irvin you just mentioned that you know personally? Oh, no, it's not true of Irvin. Irvin's an amazing guy, right? It always goes like that. And right. so that, that would be one thing that would break it down. The other thing would be, you know, okay, so you say trans people are an abomination. Have you ever been treated badly because of factors you couldn't control about yourself? Oh, yeah, well, absolutely. When I, you know, when I moved to LA, my colleagues in my workplace were so mean to me because I came from somewhere else. How did that feel? Oh, it felt terrible. I mean, I, you know, and I'm curious now, you said you think trans people are terrible. How, how does the way you were treated because of things you couldn't, how does that sit with the way you feel about trans people? The last one is a real example I'm, I'm giving you from a real canvas that I watched on a video. This woman at the door is like, oh, she gets it. You watch her get it. She's like, oh, I am, I am to trans relative that she's talking about. What my intolerant colleagues were to me. You see her get it. And so deep canvassing is built on this profound evidence-based hope that people are more complicated than they seem. That beneath prejudices is often pain, confusion, ignorance, a kind of unworked out set of experiences that haven't quite been put together or put into conversation with each other. And so deep canvassing has been a remarkable experiment now happening across the country on a range of issues, been studied by political scientists, shown to have more effectiveness in half an hour on the doors than years of social change can have on people's minds. And it all works because people on the door suspend the kind of calling out behavior that so thrives on social media, but doesn't work on the door. And they go into the space of conversation with a view that whatever you are saying to me on the surface, there are other stories within you. And through the power of conversation, I have the power to bring out those other stories, bring out those other truths and not implant the microchip of some alien view in you, but to play up some things you feel against other things you feel. It works, it moves minds. To go back to the beginning of this conversation, they are among the many persuaders I write about proving that it is very possible to change minds and people are doing it every day. And if people are telling you that it's not possible, what they really may be telling you is that they don't know how to do it and they should probably step aside for some of the remarkable persuaders across this country who do. And I have to tell you that I also thought this chapter and these examples, it was so profound. And I do need to give some credit to um, my mom, who's a psychologist, who has always said to me that below prejudice, as you said, she always uses these words, it's pain, it's confusion, and it's ignorance. And that's why these forms of persuasion, I think, are so powerful. And I'm sure that the listeners are now feeling what I'm feeling, which is I could continue this conversation so much longer, but I'm going to refer them to your book. Of course, we've been talking about the persuaders 
at the front lines of the fight for hearts, minds, and democracy. There's so much more in the book that we didn't even get to touch on. Anand, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for passing judgment with us. I so enjoy this conversation. I love the book, which honestly is somewhat rare for me. And again, really grateful for the conversation and time. I, I am as well. I really enjoyed uh, talking to you. I mean, I pass judgment all the time, but this this felt like I had <laughs> extinction to do it. Like, you know, it's it's nice to have kind of official permission. Absolutely. And we thank Anand Girdardis for having this conversation with us. We've been talking about his new book, The Persuaders at the Front Lines of the Fight for Hearts, Minds, and Democracy. I also want to recommend his Substack newsletter, The.Inc. And he has a website, www.anand.ly. Thank you to everybody who's listening. Please continue to subscribe, rate, and review. And you can find me across all of social media at Levinson Jessica. Here's wishing everybody a great day. <laughs>